Welcome to the Personal Injury Pod from St. John's Chambers. There are fewer opportunities now than ever before for solicitors to attend court and observe cross-examination and judicial judgments. On this podcast, we'll share our first-hand experience of what does and doesn't work in court. We'll also summarise and offer our insights into new developments and discuss the implications of key cases in personal injury law. In this episode, we're discussing provisional damages, what they are, how and when to pursue them, the evidence you'll need to successfully claim them or defend such a claim, practical tips on the best ways to frame and amplify your medical evidence, tactical tips on settlement and negotiation, and some of the current hot topics and issues arising from recent authority. I'm Ben Handy, a member of the Personal Injury Department here at St John's, and with me is... Sophie Howard. I'm a clinical negligence and personal injury barrister at St John's Chambers. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Ben. Should we talk about provisional damages? What are provisional damages, Ben? Well, Sophie, they're the exception to the usual rule that compensation is awarded on a once and for all basis. So usually the court facilitates a clean break between parties by deciding what the defendant needs to pay the claimant to put them in the position they would have been but for the accident and releases the defendant from any ongoing liability. So if you break your arm and you can't work for a little while, the court will give you something for the pain and suffering and something for your loss of earnings, and that'll be that. But there are times when that approach doesn't do justice. So an example might be you injure your leg and you get a deep vein thrombosis, and that actually settles quite quickly. So the initial effects aren't too bad, and you can be compensated in the usual way But your experts might tell you that as a result of your injury, you've got a small chance of a serious deterioration down the line. It might be less than 1%. And if it's a DVT, the most serious problem might be what's called venous ulceration. So if that were to happen, that very, very small chance that that arises, that might have a knock-on effect on your ability to work, your need for care, all those kind of things. And so if the court were to compensate you in the usual way and only gave you less than 1% of those knock-on costs, and it then arose, you'd find yourself massively undercompensated. So the answer is provisional damages, which is effectively a mechanism to allow an injured person an initial award of damages to see them right for now, on the assumption that a significant deterioration won't arise but allowing them to come back for more compensation in the unlikely event that that particular thing does arise. So it doesn't give you that clean break between the parties that you'd ordinarily get, but you've got that significant advantage that an injured person has almost an insurance policy against the very worst risks. What can you tell us about the legal test and perhaps how the courts have dealt with it? Well, the relevant legislation is either Section 32A of the Senior Courts Act 1981 or Section 51 of the County Courts Act 1984. And in that, it says it's where there's approved or admitted to be a chance that at some definite or indefinite time in the future, the injured person will, as a result of the act or omission which gave rise to the cause of action, develop some serious disease or suffer some serious deterioration in his physical or mental condition. Okay, so a serious deterioration. And what else? So the leading case on it is Wilson and MOD, which is a 1991 case, and it was approved in the Court of Appeal in the case of Curie and Kalina, which was a 1998 case. And in that, they set out a three-stage test. So is there a chance of the claimant developing some disease or suffering some other deterioration in physical or mental condition? 
second part of the test, can the disease or deterioration be described as serious? And thirdly, if the above two questions are yes, should the court go on to exercise its discretion to award provisional damages? So how's the court approached the first part of that test, this question of, of risk? What level of risk are we talking about? So chance isn't defined in the Senior Courts Act or the County Courts Act. And in Wilson, that was noted and, and it was noted that it was a wide word and it must have been used deliberately. So the courts have approached it that as long as it's measurable and not fanciful, there's no threshold for it to reach, that the percentage risk of serious deterioration need not be high. What's the very smallest risk that the case law has identified that you know of? There's one case from 2011, um, Cthulhu and EDF Energy Networks and others, which was in the High Court. And in that case, there was an award made for provisional damages when the risk of the claimant developing um, a really serious consequences from a syrinx was 0.1%, so very low. And the court in that case noted that it was exactly this kind of rare but highly damaging condition that Parliament must have been intending to include. Okay, so it might be a very, very small risk, as long as it's measurable. And not fanciful, yes. What about this question of how serious the deterioration needs to be? In terms of seriousness, what's envisaged is it's something beyond ordinary deterioration, and whether the deterioration is serious is a question of fact, depending on the circumstances of the case, but it also includes the effect of the deterioration upon that particular claimant. So, for example, a hand injury would have a very serious impact on a pianist, for example. But there presumably has to be a way of identifying what it is that's going to bring you back for further damages. There has to be some kind of trigger, right? Yes. As I say, it needs to be beyond ordinary deterioration. It has to be some, some clear and severable risk rather than a continuing deterioration, which would be, for example, in a, someone developing osteoarthritis over time that would be continuing deterioration. So there needs to be some clear-cut event which triggers entitlement to, to further okay. compensation. So creeping and gradual worsening of arthritis, no, wouldn't mm -hmm. be suitable. Yes. But say losing the sight in an eye would be something that's like a cliff-edge event that you can easily mark. Yes. So in the case of Wilson and MOD, the claimant injured his left foot. And in that case, the claimant argued that there were three events if occurred should occasion a further award. Firstly, they said if the claimant develops arthritis to the extent that surgery is needed. Secondly, that the claimant develops arthritis to the extent he changes his employment. And thirdly, that the claimant suffers further injury in the nature of further damage to the ankle or elsewhere. And the court weren't satisfied that one or two could properly be described as serious deterioration. It was more an aspect of a progression of that particular disease. Because it's this creeping onset Precisely. And in terms of the third point, there was a chance he may suffer an injury, but it was entirely speculative. So the court wasn't satisfied there was a chance of serious deterioration because there was no real evidence as to what may happen if the claimant did fall over. Okay. And so might another consideration be whether this deterioration, if it arises, is treatable? Yes. So there's a case XX in Whittington Hospital NHS Trust 2017, and this is when it was in the High Court, so it was subsequently appealed, but on a different issue. In that case, there was a failure to diagnose cervical cancer, leading to infertility, premature menopause, damage to um, the bowel, vagina and bladder. And provisional damages were awarded in respect of a risk of radiation enteritis, but not 
potential psychological conditions. So it was identified there was a 30 to 40% risk of the claimant having psychological deterioration only if the surrogacies failed. So the first test was satisfied, but the court wasn't satisfied that it was serious because it was likely to be temporary. And the evidence of the experts was that the psychological problems could be treated successfully in about one year. So it wasn't serious because it could be treated and resolved. Okay. So it's measurable, but it's not serious enough. Yes. And I guess this feeds into the third part of the test and whether the court should exercise its discretion or not. What's the court said about that? What is the test? In terms of exercising its discretion, the courts have said that it should be used in situations where it's a clear case. So where it's possible to describe with sufficient precision the event which has to occur before the claimant becomes entitled to seek further damages and the injury or deterioration which may occur is not speculative or unclear and also needs to take into account it needs to be a situation where paying the claimant at the date of trial in respect of the risk that they may suffer that deterioration in the future would probably be to order the defendant to pay too much but if the risk were actually to materialize then the amount would be insufficient to cover it Okay, so the court's got two choices to approach this on a once and for all lump sum type basis and to make an award reflecting the percentage risk that this thing arises or to award provisional damages. And if you take that first route and the claimant then finds themselves developing this problem years down the line, they will find themselves massively undercompensated. If you told the defendant to make that payment on a lump sum basis and this thing doesn't arise, you'd have effectively ordered the defendant to pay too much as well. Yes. So it's it's weighing that up. The court will take that into account when deciding whether or not to exercise its discretion. Should we talk about the formalities? What does the CPR require the parties to do when they're thinking about provisional damages? So if the claimant is seeking provisional damages, it needs to say so in the particulars of claim. So must be pleaded and you have to set out what, what the deterioration is? Yes. So it's practice direction 16, paragraph 4.4 sets out that the claimant needs to say that they're seeking the award of provisional damages and whether it's under the Senior Courts Act or the County Courts Act. The particulars of claim have to state that there's a chance that at some future time the claimant will develop some serious disease or suffer some serious deterioration in their physical or mental condition. And then also you have to specify the disease or type of deterioration in respect of which an application may be made at a future date. So you have to be quite specific. It can't be vague at that point when you're drafting the particulars of claim. No. Again, I suppose the court needs that identifiable trigger so that everyone knows what it is, what event it is that might bring the claimant back for more. Yes. Your pleading might say, I suppose, the claimant is seeking damages now on the basis a particular deterioration won't arise wants the right to come back in the event that this particular deterioration does arise. And I suppose you might also say you want provision to come back for a particular time period. It might be that the risk only lasts for 10 years, or it might be a lifetime risk. So you might set out that as well. Yeah. Okay. If the deterioration arises down the line, what then? The claimant would need to make an application for further damages in respect of the disease or type of deterioration that was specified in the award of provisional damages, but they can only make one application for further damages. 
And if there was a time period specified, then the claimant can't make an application for further damages after the end of that period. But the court can extend that period and the claimant may make more than one application to the court to extend. So let's imagine you were told by your expert, you've got an increased risk of developing epilepsy after a brain injury, and that's a diminishing risk. So within 10 years, you'll actually be back to normal, no more elevated than the general population. Initially, you might ask for provisional damages for a 10-year period to cover that risk. But I suppose you might find out in five years' time, actually, you're not doing as well as we thought you are. We think your risk is actually for a 20-year period. And I suppose that might then trigger an application to extend the period. Because otherwise, after the 10-year initial period expires, you wouldn't be able to seek further damages in the event it did arise at a later date. What jumped out at me was paragraph 2.5 of the practice direction to 41A, which specifically states that causation of any further damages within the scope of the order will be determined when the application for further damages is made, i.e., The simple fact your condition, this deterioration you've identified arises down the line does not mean the claimant has an open goal on causation. They still have to show that it was the accident that led to that problem. Yes, that's right. So the claimant doesn't have to, at this stage, establish the causation because that is something that will be dealt with further down the line. And actually that was talked about in one of the recent authorities we're going to look at a bit later, isn't it? That's right, yeah. If judgment is given and there's an award of provisional damages made, then Practice Direction 41A sets out all the documents that need to be preserved on the case file. And then if there's any applications made to extend time, any orders made after those also need to go on the case file and they have to be preserved until the expiry of the period. Okay, so just the basic stuff, the very minimum stuff that the court will need to get its hands on and look at in the event that fresh applications made down the line. How might parties use provisional damages in a tactical way? Well, for a claimant where it appears the case may be appropriate for an award of provisional damages, the claimant has the option still of claiming a percentage of the cost of future procedures that might be necessary in line with the percentage likelihood that they arise. Yeah, or the court might just tell them that's what's going to happen. The court doesn't have to award provisional damages and the claimant doesn't have to ask for them, I suppose. No, precisely. And the advantage of that to a claimant is that if on balance, it's unlikely they're ever going to develop the serious disease or serious deterioration and need the treatments or incur the additional costs, then the claimant will probably be overcompensated. But obviously, the disadvantage is that if that does materialise in the future, then the claimant will have been potentially massively undercompensated. One of the things I'm often saying to claimants in this situation when they're, when they're thinking about their attitude to that risk is that we're lucky in this country, we have got the NHS, we have got, albeit a very stretched state care provision. And so the reality is if lots of things develop down the line, it's not like they're going to be left completely high and dry. And so they have got some certainty, some insurance against it anyway, haven't they? Yes, because they won't necessarily have to pay for future procedures or operations that they may need. Um, But obviously you would ideally rather have private provision. It's generally better. And if you've got an insurer who should be compensating you for that, then then great. So in, in terms of tactical use, from a defendant's perspective, they may prefer to settle it on a lump sum basis rather than have a award for provisional damages made 
which runs the risk that the claimant may come back for further damages in the future. So in terms of tactics on the claimant's side, seeking an award for provisional damages may encourage the defendant to make an offer for a lump sum award that's slightly higher on the basis that there's no provisional damages. I see. Because your insurer's view might be, we just don't want that risk on our books. We just rather have that clean break. And if it means paying them a little bit more now to deal with it on a once and for all basis, we'll just do that. Yes. One of the things that jumped out at me as well was it provides an additional layer of cost protection, I think, because of the way that Par 36 is drafted. Because in a claim for provisional damages, one of the requirements of a Part 36 offer is that it must contain further information. And that information includes whether this is an offer that includes provisional damages or not. And if it does, what is the deterioration you're providing for over what period? Yeah. So there are additional things your offer must include if you're going to make an offer that's going to bite as a defendant. And so for a claimant, actually, that gives them an extra layer of protection, an extra way of avoiding the situation where a defendant's offer will run up against that offer at the end of a trial and have to pay some costs. It, it occurred to me when I was reading this that arguably, if a claimant wins provisional damages at trial and the defendant's only ever made lump sum offers, yeah. none of those offers can bite. It, it sort of occurred to me, and I know we discussed yeah. whether it's possible to imagine a lump sum offer that is so good, was so advantageous to claimant that they should have accepted it anyway. But it's actually quite difficult to imagine that in reality, isn't it? Yeah. And I think if there is an award made for further damages at a future date, it's at the stage that you're at at trial now, it's not possible to quantify exactly what that would be. That's right. You'd have to go through the exercise of working out what this claim might look like in 20 years when this deterioration's arisen, work out somehow safely what that might be worth and then comparing that to this lump sum offer it's just it seems like a bit of a leap of faith i can't really imagine it actually happening so i think the answer is claiming provisional damages probably does give you an extra layer of protection as a claimant against offers assuming of course that it's a decent claim for provisional damages but then a lot of times people don't claim them when it they could have done that's my experience yeah in terms of medical evidence then Why don't you tell us a little bit about what parties should be looking for, what might ring alarm bells? Well, the medical evidence has to be clear on what the future risks are of serious disease or serious deterioration. And it needs to be able to give a quantifiable risk of something occurring. So putting a percentage risk. Even if it were that 0.1% you talked about earlier, that has been good enough. Exactly. As long as it's quantifiable rather than a a fanciful chance. And my understanding is that the medical evidence needs to explain what the consequences of that will be for the claimant. So I suppose you're thinking about your big ticket items of quantum there, aren't you? The impact on loss of earnings and care, treatment expenses, those kind of things that, that might be chunky on a schedule of loss are the kind of things your expert might need to think about. And also um, going back to what we were saying earlier about where a condition is treatable and it may not necessarily be considered serious because it's easily treatable, the medical evidence should refer to that as well, whether there's treatment available, how long it would be, how much it would cost, etc. So a good example might be epilepsy. 
where you very often get neurologists talking about an increased risk of epilepsy after a brain injury of some kind. But what they very often don't go on to talk about is whether that can be controlled with medication if it arises. Yeah. Because I suppose if it can be controlled with medication, it's not all that serious. You may still be able to have a very full and fruitful life. Whereas what you're really asking about is what's the risk of developing epilepsy that can't be controlled with medication that really does give you that mark of seriousness. Yeah. In terms of cases that you've dealt with with medical experts, have you found there's particular ways of pinning the experts down, ensuring that the evidence is is clear and addresses the points that need to be covered? This should be part of your solicitor's uh, standard letter of instruction, maybe even copy and paste from the statute. This is what we're actually asking you to think about. And then maybe with some some real world practical examples, i.e. what we're really thinking about here is the knock-on impact on the claimant's ability to work, their ability to self-care, their mobility, those kind of things. Because the experts, it's no criticism of them, I just don't think they often appreciate exactly what it is we're after, because they will see this as such a vanishingly small possibility down the line that frankly, very often, they just don't want to go near it because they don't want to scare the claimant. Yeah. So actually, that's something to think about from a, a sort of client care perspective. Do you really want the claimant there in conference with the experts sitting there talking about the most serious deterioration they might suffer, yeah. or at least giving them very careful warning at the start of the conversation that, look, we're talking about things that are so unlikely. What we're trying to do is value your claim. We're not trying to scare you. But these things are important for defendants too. I mean, defendants very often will think we'd rather leave this evidence alone rather than build a claimant's case for them. But I had a case just the other day where the defendants had confronted these sort of nebulous risks head on. Yeah. It was an internal injuries case and we were talking about um, the risk of adhesions inside the stomach and mm-hmm. we were talking about uh, risks of recurrent hernia. And actually it sounded very, very bad because of the way the expert had worded it, but the defendants did some digging and questions along the lines of what's the impact on work? Is it treatable? That kind of thing. And the answers they got effectively shot any provisional damages claim out of the water. So it's not always the best thing for defendants to do to effectively ignore it and hope it goes away. Shall we finally just talk about recent authority, current issues? Because dementia is a big one right now, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So there's a lot of talk about dementia at the moment in the media and the link between head injuries and dementia. There's been talk about the link between injuries in sport, so heading a football and dementia, and that can also be a traumatic brain injury and the potential link with dementia. But the science is developing at the moment and it's not established that there is a clear link, but there is an association there. Yeah, I mean, the zeitgeist, the sort of public understanding is that there is a link, right? I mean, you see this in the news all the time, that there's another rugby player or another footballer who is inexplicably suffering either dementia or or some other sort of cognitive condition and at a frequency way above the general population. So everyone sort of instinctively feels like there's a link. But how are the courts dealing with it? From a legal perspective, there's the the question of whether it's a separate, severable condition to the initial impact of the accident or whether it's a gradual deterioration. A bit like arthritis, whether it sort of yeah. creeps over time or whether it's a clear marker. Yeah, precisely. And then there's also the causation points. So whether that person would have developed 
dementia in any event, what precisely the causes are. And some experts consider there's not sufficient evidence that there's an increased risk of dementia due to traumatic brain injury, whereas others are of the view that there is. It feels like the court's almost asking claimants to establish this causative link in a way that's inconsistent with that practice direction we looked at earlier, which said the claimant will need to establish causation. If and when this deterioration develops, they'll then have to establish the link between that and the accident. It almost feels like the court's asking them to deal with it now. Is that what the court's doing or is it is it a sort of lower bar than that? There's a, a recent case of Matthew and Hines this year in, in the High Court before Mrs Justice Hill where this issue came up. The claimant in that case was injured in a road traffic accident and suffered a traumatic brain injury. And in that case, the judge went through the test in Wilson that I set out at the beginning of this podcast. And there was no award for provisional damages made in respect of the chance of the claimant developing dementia due to his traumatic brain injury. She said, didn't she, it's not that you have to necessarily establish causation in the way you would ordinarily, I suppose, but you still have to do something. You've got to show that there's more than a fanciful chance that this accident will cause dementia in future. So it's a low bar, but there is a bar there. Yeah. So in terms of the first test, the judge wasn't satisfied that on the current state of the science that the claimant could show to the balance of probabilities, the existence of a more than fanciful chance that the traumatic brain injury would lead to him developing dementia. He had to establish that a traumatic brain injury like the one suffered can cause dementia just in principle, that general point. And I suppose that then is a fight between medical experts. Yeah, so Lady Justice Hill preferred the defendant's medical expert's interpretation of the research that an association between traumatic brain injury and dementia doesn't necessarily mean that one thing has caused the other. No, it's that kind of correlation isn't the same as causation. Again, it instinctively doesn't feel right to me. It feels like you're throwing up that hurdle, which the courts have said repeatedly you shouldn't be throwing up at this stage. Yeah, if the test is whether there's a chance and arguably in that case that's what the claimant had established. I suppose that's the point. We're not the judge. We haven't heard the evidence in that particular case. And while the background, as I said, that zeitgeist, we all sort of instinctively feel there's this growing body of evidence supporting more than a fanciful chance of a link. On the evidence that she heard, the judge didn't feel that she could find that. No. But it's clearly not gone away, this issue. I mean, we've got our catastrophic injury conference coming up next week. And loads of it is about this very issue. We've got two experts, I think Dr. Sharma and Dr. Bonetto. I think they're taking the opposite sides of this argument and they're going to argue it for our delegates. And then straight after that, we've got Christopher Sharp, KC, giving his take on it. And I know it's it's something he's very interested in. You might be listening to this podcast after the catastrophic injury conference has happened, in which case just get in touch with us for the slides or contact us for advice. I've also got a feeling... Matcha might be being appealed on several grounds, and this might be one of them. Yes, it is being appealed at the moment. It's interesting in the case of Matcha that even if the judge had been satisfied the questions, parts one and two of the test were satisfied, the judge held that it wouldn't be appropriate to exercise the discretion to award provisional damages in respect of dementia in any event. And that was on the basis that the clarity of the development of the condition relied upon and the extent to which the developing condition could be severed or separated from the original condition 
and the ability to identify the cause or origin of the developing condition that wasn't there. So is that basically that point we were talking about before about whether it's a clear enough event? It's not akin to losing an eye. It's more akin to creeping arthritis. Yeah. So the judge didn't accept that post-traumatic brain injury dementia is clearly diagnosable on the basis of current scientific evidence, which may change, clearly. I'm really interested to hear what our experts have got to say about this at our conference. Hopefully bringing clarity to it, because I have to admit, I can't quite work out which side of the fence I fall on this. No, it's a tricky tricky topic, definitely. Okay. Well, look, Sophie, that was a relatively shallow dive into provisional damages but an interesting one and thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me yes it was great thanks ben i will see you well in chambers thank you very much for listening to the personal injury pod in upcoming episodes we'll be looking into fundamental dishonesty surveillance and the law surrounding material contribution in clinical negligence cases so don't forget to subscribe to the podcast If you'd like to find out more about St. John's Chambers or to get in touch with us, go to our website at stjohnschambers.co.uk.